Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. How are we doing this morning? If you're here uh, in the building or watching online, thank you so much for being a part of uh, part of Sailorville Church here. We are. Thank you, Adam, for reading that passage of scripture. We are wrapping up our first chapter, the first chapter of Ephesians. And uh, my goodness, what a fantastic series it's been so far. So if you have your Bibles, we're in the last couple verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Grab those Bibles and uh, listen along uh, when we get there. A few years ago, uh, actually a few years after Meredith and I got married, I was a poor seminary student and she was working for the Scranton Counseling Center. Yes, that Scranton from that TV show, it is... Very true to life. We were on vacation. Uh, We got a call from one of our neighbors asking if we had intentionally left the front door wide open. Since we were still planning to be away for a few days, we just asked him to shut the door and uh, we would be back in a couple days and take care of it. Well, you know where this is going, right? We came back a little bit later. We walked into the house and quickly realized that we had been robbed. A burglar had come through the bathroom window, rifled through all of our dresser drawers, and Stolen some of our most prized possessions, things like a video cassette recorder, otherwise known as a VCR. Uh, also missing was a compact disc player, not just the regular one, but the one with the three discs that you didn't have to manually reach in and eject it. This was cutting edge technology. Uh, they also took our change bowl that was on my dresser, a bowl of loose change. And so, you know, we called the local police station, and a few minutes later, two officers in uniform showed up. Now, this was my first real experience being robbed, and so uh, my only frame of reference came from TV shows like CSI and Law and & Order and things like that, right? <laughs> so I was pretty sure that these guys were going to come in in, like, full flak jackets and billy clubs and tasers and DNA printing, uh, you know, fingerprinting and DNA testing kits and all that stuff. After all, this was, like, a major, major crime in our little town. There's at least $14 a change in that bowl, okay? <laughs> I told you we were poor. Uh, much to my disappointment, though, um, there was no real investigation, no fingerprinting, no DNA swabbing, no yellow police caution tape, no chalk lines of people on the floor, none of that sort of stuff. But what the officers did do was they asked us to make a list of everything that we thought was missing. So we were to write down everything that was stolen. So over the next several days, Meredith and I racked our brains for everything that we could think of that we couldn't find anymore, things that we once had but had been taken from us. And one of the items that we couldn't find was a box of silverware that had belonged to Meredith's grandmother and had been passed down to Meredith as a gift when Nana died. You know these kind of things, right? The family heirlooms that everybody wants to have but nobody ever uses, right? I mean, it was actual silver, not just the stuff from a grocery store. And what do you do with real silver? I mean, real silver? Well, you put it in a Rubbermaid tote and tuck it under the stairwell in the cellar. That's what you do with it. You forget about it, at least until the robbery. And now we couldn't find it anywhere. And I'm telling you, we looked for weeks for that box of antique silverware. And so when our insurance agency called and asked us to give them the list of everything that was stolen so they could reimburse us, that silverware was by far the most expensive thing on that list, even more valuable than the VCR, if you can believe it. In fact, when we found out how much that box of antique silverware was worth, we were amazed. The silverware was the most valuable thing that we owned. (laughs) We didn't even know it. We had been rich, and we didn't even realize it. Now, rich is a relative term, of course, right? 
If you've been attending Sailorville on Sunday mornings, maybe you've been watching for a few weeks now, you know where this is going. We've been working our way slowly through Paul's, this is incredible declaration of everything that we have in Christ. You see these gifts, right? All the blessings given to us who are true followers, to those of us who are in Christ. Every single one of these amazing gifts are treasures, and they are yours if you are a true believer, if you're in Christ. So if you, were to ask, if you were to be asked to make a list of all your valuables as a Christian, these are the things that you would start with. If you're in Christ, you are rich, whether you act like it or not. And if you're anything like me, unpacking these gifts on the last several Sunday mornings through the series has been, quite honestly, overwhelming, hasn't it? Because I feel like every single one of them is more than what I deserve. You ever feel like that? Maybe you feel like that on like Christmas morning. It's October 31st, so tomorrow begins the Christmas season at our house. We're already talking about presents. We're putting the trees up tomorrow. And here's the way it works in my family. Meredith loves gifts, and she's super good at giving them. Me, not so much. Okay, so on Christmas, well, actually, before that, all year, Meredith will pay attention to what I look at and what I say and what I mention. And on Christmas morning, Judah and I will sit on the living room floor, and we'll be surrounded by all these gifts, things that we might have even mentioned throughout the year. And we unwrap gift after gift after gift, and I will be sitting there and saying, boy, that coupon for a free back rub that I gave you looks really, really bad right now. (laughs) I'll do better this year, honey, I promise. Every one of these gifts in Ephesians 1 by itself would be amazing, wouldn't it? It'd be enough. And yet God doesn't stop. He gives us blessed, and he adds to blessed, chosen. And to chosen, he adds predestined. And to predestined, he adds adopted. And to adopted, he adds loved and accepted. And, and then he, we rip off the, the, ta- the, the tag of this other, this other gift, and he gives us, he gives us I'm, I'm setting up a pathway for you. And it just keeps going and going and going, our inheritance and, and illumination and insight and all these things. It's just amazing. The gifts don't stop for those who are in Christ. He just keeps piling on these gifts, one on top of another. And it's as if we're sitting on the living room floor looking at all the wrapping paper surrounding us, and and we can't even fathom how much we've been given, how much has been sacrificed for us, how much we're loved, and how much is available to us who are in Christ. Look at these gifts. They're overwhelming. And today we're unboxing the final gift From this chapter, as we conclude in this first chapter of Ephesians, and we move on to chapter 2 next week. And if you think the first chapter has been awesome, just buckle up and get pumped because next chapter, there's a whole bunch more coming. It's awesome. By the way, do you ever come to church excited? I mean, I hope you're today here excited. I hope you're ready to learn. Are you here this morning anticipating God is going to speak to you through his word or maybe through a conversation you have in the hallway or a song that we sang or a prayer that you've heard or you prayed along with or scripture that we're reading? Are you anticipating God doing something? Do you show up to your community group every week just ready to dig into life and learning with others? Or maybe you open up your Bible. How many of you open up your Bible and and just before you begin to read it, you're asking that God shows you something great and mighty in his word. I hope that you're here this morning asking God, still God, speak through your words. Speak through your Holy Spirit in the lives of other people around me. Show me something. I hope that you're anticipating something great this morning. If you are, open up your Bibles, grab your device, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to back up to verse number 15 to get some context here before we dig into where we're going this morning. Ephesians 1, 15, remember Paul is reminding us of what he prayed for and how he prayed for these friends in Ephesus. So for this reason, Paul says, 
Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that, one, you may know what's the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and three, what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Here's how he seated. Far above all rule, above all authority, above all power, above all dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age today, but in the one to come forevermore. And he put all things under under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Oh yeah, let's go. That's where we're at today. And so Paul finishes this amazing run on this declaration of all of our blessings overflowing with blessings after blessings after blessings for those of us who are in Christ. And then if it's me, and I'm Paul, I'm putting my pen, my quill down, and I'm taking a big breath, right? I'm taking a deep breath, I'm getting up, taking a walk, grabbing some ice cream, maybe some Doritos, and then I'm coming back ready to go at my desk again. Here I am diving back in. And then his personal love for these dear Ephesians starts coming out. And he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you guys. It's not a cliche. Paul is genuinely praying for the Ephesians. I had someone do this for me this last week. He stopped me, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, hey, how can I pray for you? Have you had someone do that? And I told him, and literally a couple minutes later, he said, I just prayed for you, and I love you. Remember who you are. Do you do that with people around you? Or maybe you just say, I'll pray for you, as a conversation closer, <laughs> or as a cliche, or as a Christian way to say goodbye. And you don't pray. Paul did. Paul did. Pastor Pat told us last week how Paul prayed for his friends in Ephesus and really how we should be praying for each other. Remember verse 17, that they would experience inspiration, that their spiritual depth would increase. Is that happening in your life? Here's a gauge. Are you more like Jesus than you were last year? Last month? Maybe last week, are you more like Christ? Verse 18, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Pastor called that illumination, to see beyond life's circumstances. How'd you do with that this last week? Were you able to see God's purposes through life's problems? How many of you faced problems this last week? I know you did, right? Were you able to see God's purposes through or even in those problems? That's illumination. And verse 19, that they would experience and exercise God's power. That's initiation initiation. And it's, it's this idea of living in light of God's power. That's really where Paul takes the rest of this chapter. He unpacks it for these last couple of verses. In fact, it's as if Paul is anticipating the question that you might be asking this morning, and maybe one that you even asked this last week. Hey, Paul, if this power is really available to me, then how come I don't feel it? If all this great power and might and energy, strength is available to me, then why don't I feel it all the time? Why, God, do you want me to experience, if you want me to experience a full and abundant life, why, why do I feel so empty and poured out sometimes? I mean, that's great, Paul. I think I understand what you're saying. I've got all these gifts, and, and I've got all these possessions and power in Christ, but why do I feel so powerless most of the time? Why can't I get over my fear of failure? 
How come, Paul, I can't, I can't control my tongue? Why do I struggle so much with my eyes? They wander off of what I know I should be looking at and onto what I know I shouldn't be looking at. Why, Paul, why do I find myself angry with my spouse or my kids or my roommate or my parents? If there's all this power, power available to me, God, then why do I doubt you when things get tough? How come I can't conquer my sin? Why can't I change all these habits in my life? Am I the only one that asks questions like this? Can I be real with you this morning? I've been struggling with this for a few weeks now. Maybe you have too. Really, since we started this series, we have opened up all these incredible gifts every single week. And while I've been amazed and overwhelmed at what's mine in Christ, I've been left wondering, why do I still struggle? I mean, look at all this stuff. Why am I still struggling with this? Like a child on the floor after opening up all his Christmas gifts, it still feels like I'm looking around, not quite getting what I really need. I mean, all these things are incredible. They're overwhelming. But in and of themselves, catch this, gifts are meaningless without a relationship with the giver. Gifts are meaningless without a relationship with the giver. And I think that's the key. Paul's purpose in this chapter, maybe even in this book, and perhaps even throughout the whole Bible itself, is to not to point you and I to the gifts, to the blessings, to the possessions, but to point us to the giver. In fact... The gifts themselves presuppose that there is a giver. And so while I'm amazed that God blessed me, adopted me, predestined me, loves me, accepts me, gives me an inheritance, all those things, none of those gifts are worth anything in light of eternity without the giver. And that's where it all clicked for me this week. These gifts are meant to point me to Christ. These gifts are meant to point you to Christ. We say it all the time. Jesus is the main story. That's the gospel, right? All these blessings that he gives us are designed to point me back to him, not to be experienced and enjoyed instead of him or even without him. Now, I know almost everybody in this auditorium and online understands this because we've all been to kids' birthday parties, right? Kids love parties because, let's be honest, people bring presents, <laughs> And every parent in the world has sat their kid down before their own birthday party and reminded them, now when people give you presents and you open them, make sure that you look at them in the eyes and you say thank you. And don't say things like, I didn't like that. Or I already have two of those. Or that's not the color I wanted. Or clothes, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Why do we say that? Because people are more important than presents. The people are more important than the presence. I know every parent here has said that. So when Paul tells you and I that he wants us to tap into the same power that raised Christ from the dead, we don't get access to that gift without going through Christ himself. And if we try to get that power without exalting Christ, we won't. And if we try to gain an inheritance without seeing Jesus as our ultimate treasure, we'll stay spiritually poor. If we fall in love with the idea of being adopted without falling in love with the one who adopts us, we're missing the point. Maybe you think it's a fine line. Not to Paul. Watch this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, I'm dead, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, you see this, gave himself for me. Gave himself for me. If you're a Christian, Paul says your life is no longer your own. You live for Jesus because Jesus lives in you. You're in Christ. It's not about what Jesus gives you. Catch this. It's about Jesus himself. 
Yeah, the gifts are amazing. They're overwhelming. They're incredible. Worth far more than we can ever imagine. But the best gift isn't something we get from Jesus. It's Jesus himself. And that's why in Christ, the best gift we can ever get, the best gift we ever receive is, in fact, Jesus. That's how it has to be. Because only through Jesus do we gain access to all these other great gifts. If you're in Christ, the greatest blessing isn't something you get from Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, what does this look like in the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 1? So how does Paul end this incredible passage after listing out all these amazing gifts? Here's the answer. By pointing us to Jesus. By exalting Christ. By putting Jesus in the place that only he deserves at the center of our lives, at the center of history, and yes, even at the center of the universe. Paul says, all of these possessions you have in Christ, they're amazing. They're unbelievable. They're overwhelming. But the best gift ever, it's Jesus. It has to be Jesus. And here's why. This is where we're going this morning. Write it down. Three reasons why Jesus is the greatest gift. Three reasons why Jesus is the greatest of the gifts. First, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Look at verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 1. It's right there. God's great power that he worked in Christ when he, say it, raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen? In the middle of his prayer for power, Paul directs our attention to the resurrection, the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen. Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Christ, it's the fundamental issue upon which Christianity either rises or falls. Our faith is based on it. The power of God demonstrated in Christ's resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the watershed moment of all of history. And Paul said, without the reality of the resurrection, our preaching's in vain and our faith is worthless. In In fact, if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then we are believing a fairy tale, a fable, a myth, a nice story. Oh, it's a nice story, but it's just a story. But the truth of Christianity is verified by God's power. The validity of Christianity rises and falls on the veracity of the resurrection. Your faith depends on Jesus rising from the dead. The power demonstrated on resurrection day was the culmination, the the piling up, the sort of the big reveal of God's plan for the redemption of this world. In fact, the entire life of Christ was a demonstration of the power of God. Watch this. We see the power of God in Christ's birth. A virgin conceived by the supernatural power of God. A sinless man, the second Adam, was born, brought into this world. Then we see the power of God as Jesus stretched out his hands to heal. He opened blind eyes, made the deaf to hear. He cleansed lepers. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. Jesus, we see God's power through Christ as he walked on water and calmed storms and turns a little boy's lunch into a buffet for thousands of people. He went on the cross and we see God's power manifested in his death. 
His suffering and death was a dramatic demonstration of God's power working in him. And that all leads up to this great moment that changed history forever. And if you don't think it's a big deal, watch what Lewis Chafer says. Every power of Satan and man had combined to retain Christ's body in the tomb. Everything everywhere was laser focused on Jesus staying in that grave. It was over. All the devil's energies focused on the grave, doing everything he could to keep Jesus' lifeless body in that tomb. But God can not be stopped. And on the third day, he reached down from heaven and with his mighty hand, he rolled away the stone and by the power of God, Christ rose from the dead. But the essence of saving faith isn't just believing that the resurrection happened. Listen, the devil himself can't deny that, right? We know that. But the gospel's found in the truth of why the resurrection happened, not just that it happened. Seeing the supreme beauty of Christ and the meaning of the event and, and embracing him as Savior and Lord and the greatest treasure in the universe, that's the gospel. Satan doesn't see the crucified and risen Lord as supremely beautiful. He certainly doesn't treasure him, but believers do. True Christians do. That's the essence of saving faith. That's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. That's why we say that Christianity is the only true way to God. Friends, if you're here today and you say, I believe that the resurrection happened, but you've never personally trusted in Jesus Christ as the one who died in your place for your sins, substituting himself for you and rose again victorious for you, you don't have saving faith if you just believe that that it happened. That puts you in the same category as the devil. Make Jesus your resurrected Christ today. Your Savior. Not just the resurrected Christ. This resurrected Jesus, he's alive. And he's the greatest gift of all. That's number one. Here's number two. Second, Jesus is king now and forever. He's alive and he's king now and forever. Why can we look at Jesus as the greatest gift of all? Look at the next couple of verses, starting in 20 through 22. Here's the message paraphrase of this passage. Read this with me. God raised him from the death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to government. No name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all. He's got the final word on everything. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead and then sat him at God's right hand, that same power that resurrected Christ put him at God's right hand. And what's he doing there now? Well, he's ruling and reigning over everything. Watch how Paul stacks up these words to make a point. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, above all authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, not just today, but forever. And as if we couldn't miss it, he ends by saying, and he put all things under his feet. We can't miss what Paul's trying to say, right? He's driving at this. The risen Christ has the authority to rule over history, over human beings, over everything. He's king right now. He is king today. But he's also king in the future, also king forever. His rule and his reign are for all eternity, and he wins in the end, Right? How do I know this? Because we've got a little glimpse into the final battle in Revelation chapter 20 where John in his vision records this. Picture this as a vision as I read it. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the pit and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And verse 10 says, he was released and then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Friends, Jesus wins. And I want to be there when this devil gets thrown into the lake of fire, I want to punch him in the mouth and kick him in the gut and throw him over myself. Because Jesus wins against sin and sorrow. Because Jesus wins against pain and persecution. He wins against arrogance and addiction. He wins against demons. And yes, he wins against the devil himself. I want to look at the devil and say, scoreboard, buddy. You lose. Jesus wins. And I'm on his team. But we don't have to wait to experience that kind of victory. That's awesome. Jesus rose from the grave. He's already defeated Satan, hasn't he? Christ is already King of kings and Lord of lords. And when you and I are tempted, when it seems like the devil's getting the upper hand and, and we're tempted to throw in the towel and call it quits, you've been there, I know you've been there. That's when we need to get our eyes off of our circumstances. Listen to this. Get our eyes off of our circumstances and get our eyes up onto our Savior. He wins forever and today. This last week we were talking about this whole idea in our community group. We were sitting around our dining room table. One of the men in our group said something that was so simple, it was profound. He said, whenever I feel like the devil is starting to attack, I just point up to heaven and say, hey, remember who wins in the end. <laughs> whenever I feel like the devil is starting to attack, I just remind him, hey, you lose. You lose. You don't get to win today. You don't get to win in eternity. That's so good. Friend, Christ is in the highest seat of honor right now, and he's at the right hand of God. He's in the highest seat of authority. He's in the highest seat of majesty. He's the God-man. He's King Jesus. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's ruling now, and he'll rule for all eternity. And so these gifts, they're amazing. They're overwhelming. But the real treasure isn't just the gift. It's the giver. It's Christ himself. Lift up your eyes and your hearts and stare at him. Exalt him, King Jesus. Is he your king? He's offering himself to you as the greatest gift ever. Imagine that, the King of kings, yours for all eternity. The King of kings, yours for all eternity. That's why he's the greatest gift, because he's king now and forever. Number three out of this passage, Jesus is God's gift to the church. He's alive, he's king, and he's God's gift to the church. Look at verse 22. God put all things under his feet and gave him, watch this, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now watch what Paul says about the relationship between Jesus and the church here. God is actually pictured as giving Jesus himself to the church as a gift. Did you see that? God gave him to the church. And these are maybe the most important words of this whole chapter, maybe. Jesus is God's greatest gift to the church. 
Jesus is God's greatest gift to the church. That means he's God's greatest gift to the church in Australia, where Russ and Kathy Matthews serve. We saw them on FaceTime last week right here. God's greatest gift to the church is Jesus. The church in Germany, where Rich and Julia Rudolph and Christy Walker serve. God's greatest gift to the church in France, where Tyler and, Bet- and, and Kat Betts are, is Jesus. And God's greatest gift is Jesus to the church in Brazil and to Togo and to Portugal. And God's greatest gift to the church is Jesus in the Engage Network, right here at Sailorville in Des Moines, in our metro, to Lakeside and Polk City, and to Living Waters on the south side of Des Moines, to High Point and Altoona, and yes, all the way down to Winterset, where Redeemer is, and even in Ankeny here at New City. God's greatest gift to the church is Jesus, not just for our network now, but our network in the future. Huxley people don't even know what's about to hit them. They're going to get God's greatest gift to them and to the church, Jesus. God's greatest gift to the next church is Jesus, and the church after that, and the church after that, and yes, even to Sailorville Church. So what do you do with gifts? What have we done with this gift? Jesus. Church, what are we doing with Jesus? It's easy to take Jesus, the greatest treasure the world has ever known, and and to smile and to say nice things like Jesus is our main story and we want to make more people more like him, but then to practically put him in a Rubbermaid tote and hide him under the stairwell in a moldy cellar. Now that we got Jesus, we're good, right? Let's just tuck him away and bring him out like maybe on special occasions. We can do church without him, can't we? Friends, a church without Jesus as its head isn't a church at all. A church that doesn't submit to Jesus as its leader, as its authority, as its guide, that's just a group of people getting together, wasting their time. You might gather on Sundays, you might sing pretty songs, you might even open up the Bible once in a while, but if you've hidden Jesus away and you only bring him out on really special occasions, you don't have church. That's why this church, Sailorville Church, will by God's grace preach Jesus as he is. He's alive, he's king, and he's head of this church. And yes, Jesus is God's greatest gift to you today also. He's been here all along. Stop chasing. Stop striving. Stop losing. Accept Jesus as God's greatest gift and receive all these other blessings along the way. So Meredith and I searched for weeks for Nana's antique silverware, and we finally gave up, and we turned in the list of stolen items to our insurance agency, and we were pretty discouraged by the whole thing. Honestly, not because it was silverware that we used a whole bunch, but because we'd known that we'd been searching for something that was valuable only to realize that it was gone. Left us feeling a little bit empty, honestly. A few days later, we got the insurance check, and we put it in the bank, and we thought that was the last that we were ever going to think about that box of antique silverware. But later that week, I came home from work, and I saw um, this box on the kitchen counter. There it is. I don't know if you can see it, but that's a box of antique silverware. Meredith had been looking for some decorations downstairs and had discovered Nana's antique silverware in a Rubbermaid tote under the stairwell, in our moldy cellar. (laughs) It wasn't gone. It wasn't stolen. And we'd been searching for a treasure that we had all along. And we were living as if this incredible gift had been lost or stolen, when in reality, we'd just forgotten about it. We were rich, (laughs) and we didn't know it. Friends, maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been searching for something that's right in front of you. 
Maybe you knew a little bit about Jesus when you were a kid or somebody's told you something about Jesus. You've got a vague recollection of what that person once told you, but you've never really trusted in him. Today, today, reach out and accept the gift of Jesus himself. Believe that you are a sinner, and through Christ's death and resurrection, the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And then access all these other amazing treasures that come when you make Jesus your Lord. Or maybe, like Meredith and I, you've been searching for a treasure that you've had all along. Not just a possession, but a person. Not just something, but the one. Not just the gifts, but the giver of the gifts. And when you don't feel like you've got the strength, look to the Savior, Jesus. Exalt him. He's alive. He's king. And he's the greatest gift ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus along with all these other gifts, but sending Jesus to be the greatest gift ever. Not to stay in that tomb after he died for our sins, but to be resurrected. To have victory over Satan. To have victory over death. To have victory over sin. It's one of the reasons we can have victory over sin, Lord, because you've already defeated Satan. In the past, You'll do it today, and you'll do it for all of eternity. God, thanks for Jesus. It's hard to say anything else, really. Thank you for Jesus. In your name, amen. Let's stand and sing.